Well, it's really nice to, to be with you all this morning, and it's great to be back in church. And for those of you who are following online, well, we wish you were here. <laughs> and uh, we, we look forward to <clears throat> a time where we trust in God's will that uh, things will be opening up <clears throat> and opening up more until all of us can meet together again, just like we used to. And it has been a hard time, <clears throat> a really difficult time, but we thank you that, uh, you know, I, I find that every week I give God thanks for the technology that allows us to actually be at least digitally together uh, <clears throat> as we're able to do through Zoom or through YouTube or live streaming. So uh, this morning, I see that we've been going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to turn to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to be reading from verse 16 in a moment. But um, I know that others may well have, you know, referred to this passage already. But I make no apology for doing that again. So what we've got here is that Paul is writing to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. That's an area that is actually today in central Turkey. If you think where Ankara is... You think of Turkey as a sort of big rectangle, Ankara is right in the middle there. And that whole area around there was the ancient Roman province of Galatia. And <clears throat> there were churches scattered around there. Paul, in his first uh, missionary journey, you know, established fellowships there and actually visited there again a good number of times. So he's writing to the churches there. And he's writing to, to real people in real places about real issues. And I think this is something that, you know, sometimes we can get so familiar with the Bible that we, we just sort of read it and we, we don't think of what it must have been like in the first century, the middle of the first century, receiving a letter like this in a church in a very hard-pressed situation where you've got people around in a full-blown uh, pagan world with all of the idolatry and so on and um, with false teachers beginning to start to come into the church and pervert the message of the church and uh, these, these were difficult times and, and these, these were real people that uh, Paul's writing to and he's, he's got a very heavy pastoral heart. So he explains that uh, genuine believers in Jesus will have the Holy Spirit within them. And this is shown in the tangible fruit, or as some commentators uh, say, the harvest that should be obvious in the life of a believer in Jesus. And so Paul explains how the Spirit is in direct conflict with the standards and behavior of the world around. So I'm just going to read <clears throat> a chapter 5 from verses 16 to 18 at the moment. And so Paul is saying, he says, So I say to you people living in, in Galatia, walk by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh <clears throat> desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you, <clears throat> so <clears throat> that you are not, 
to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so then Paul goes on to describe the kind of behavior that surrounds us in a godless world. And he moves on to verse 19. And he lists a whole lot of stuff that's swirling around in society, in Galatia, but it could very easily be in Scotland, in Motherwell, in Hamilton, in Burnside, in Rutherglen, wherever. And he says this, that sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the, and the like. I, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he's described all of these these things. And, and, and there's a warning in verse 21 there, serious warning. And then as a massive contrast, Paul describes these outward signs, the fruit, the harvest, if you like, of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life, in their personality, in their attitudes, in their values, in their behavior. And so in verse 22, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love. You looked at love a few weeks ago. It's joy. You looked at joy last week. It's peace. We're going to look at that today. Uh, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no spirit. Is, is in total contrast to the acts of the sinful nature. Look at verse 19 there. Uh, the acts of the flesh or the sinful nature. Uh, total contrast, massive contrast. Uh, and it's not, <clears throat> uh, you know, when, when we live and we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that's not credited, with us, credited to us as, as, as believers ourselves or, or to keep a, a rigid set of laws but it's credited to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, bringing about in the believer a harvest of character traits that are the total opposite of the acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh. And so we, we've thought about love and about joy, and today we're going to talk about peace. Now, peace, what, is, what, what, what does peace mean? Is it the absence of war? I think coming from um, a sort of Greek, kind of Western sort of side of things, we, our understanding of peace is the absence of something, the absence of war, the absence of noise, the absence of people during lockdown. One of the biggest challenges that Heidi has had, especially in the first lockdown, is that she's had all these people in her house, day in, day out, morning, noon, night. And I remember when some of us all went out for a walk and Heidi had the house to herself and she said it was so 
peaceful. <laughs> the absence of something. That's what we often think, you know, the absence of conflict, the absence of noise, the absence of war, that, that's what we think is peace. And, and of course, in these days, there was what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace in Paul's day. And it was much better than war, of course, but uh, <clears throat> it was always a fragile peace that the Roman Empire brought about. And it was a peace that was enforced by the sword of a brutal military might. And so we often think of peace as an absence of conflict and so on. But the concept of peace in the New Testament writings is derived from the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And that has a much, much fuller and broader and deeper meaning. <coughs> in, in Greek, it's irene. And if you're here today or you're listening online and you're called Irene, that's where it comes from. The Greek, word, the, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. And uh, <coughs> this is a very positive word. It means a state of, of wholeness, of soundness, and, and it can describe a state of a person or a society's health and their sense of security and, and well-being towards God and towards each other. And ultimately, it means to experience wholeness in the fullest possible way in every aspect of, of life. That's what it means. At peace with others and at peace with God. A deep inner sense of completeness and tranquility. And, so, and actually, the, uh, there's a friend I've been writing to by email <clears throat> the, this week about something, and he always closes his emails with shalom. <laughs> uh, and it, it just really means, may you be full of well-being. It's a lot nicer, isn't it, than kind regards. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the word peace, uh, it's a word that's used plentifully throughout the Old and the New Testament. And, of course, Paul and others use it as part of their opening greetings in their letters. Uh, if we just look at Galatians chapter 1, for example, and uh, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 1 and verse Three, he starts, grace and peace, shalom, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And, and most of the letters in the New Testament start uh, with that, that greeting. And uh, so Paul's writing to, <clears throat> when he's writing to the church in uh, Thessalonica, in Second Thessalonians, in chapter 3 and verse 16 and and he gets to the end of the letter and he says this the lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and if that's what this peace means look at the sheer contrast to the acts of the sinful nature in galatians 5 19 to 21 look at some of these things that are listed there in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, which are utterly disrupt all of life. When we think of peace, just think about, have, have this shalom peace in our minds at the moment. And then we're reading here about discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. All these make a peace-filled, shalom-centered life impossible. However, if our lives are marked by shalom, by this deep, settled, calm, wholesome peace, we demonstrate 
the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But wait a minute, where, where does this peace actually come from? Important to see that. Well, it's ultimately, of course, from God himself, because he is the God of peace. We need to ensure that our concept of God is absolutely in line with the revelation that God has given us in the Bible. Now and again, people say, well, you know, my concept of God, is actually, we should not be interested in what people's concept of God is. Our concept of God needs to be shaped and formed uh, by his revelation of himself in the scripture. And God is often described as the God of peace. And Paul closes his first letter to the church in Thessalonians in uh, 1 Thessalonians in 5 and 23. And, and this is how he closes the letter. He, he says, May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. And so he writes to the, the believers in, in Philippi in uh, chapter 4 and, and uh, verse, know, verse 9, Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And of course, Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Savior, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9 and verse 6, and, and, and what and Isaiah's prophecy says this, it says, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so when Christ did come, the shepherds heard from the choir of angels in Luke chapter 2 and 14. <laughs> this is what they heard on that, on that Bethlehem hillside. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, shalom in its fullest sense <clears throat> to those on whom his favor rests. And so God's very character and his son's character and the Holy Spirit is one of peace, of shalom in its fullest sense. But wait, wait, wait a minute, Derek, wait, wait a minute. How can we sinful people ever have this peace? We could not have, if not for the cross. Because what happened at the cross made it possible for the barrier of sin which separates us from a holy and righteous God to be completely removed. So Paul could write <clears throat> to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And this is what Paul writes. This is, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's in the Lord Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and look at this phrase, by making peace. How? How is that peace made? Through his blood shed on the cross. We're going to be thinking about that later at communion. Through his blood shed on the cross. That's why Paul could write to the Christians in Rome with absolute and utter confidence. Our chairman read it already this morning, Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
no cross, no peace with God. So how does this peace, this fruit of the Spirit, work out in the life of the believer? Well, you know, that's a sort of theology, but I really thought that we should look at, you know, a few practical examples and just just bringing things from my own experience and from things that uh, I've observed. And there are three, three things, really. The first thing is this. This peace, this kind of peace that is produced by the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer, this peace breaks down barriers. Now, what, do we, what do we mean by that? <clears throat> well, when Paul wrote to the believers in the predominantly pagan city of Ephesus, he writes to a church that's made up rather incredibly, really when you think about it, of converted pagan non-Jews and converted Jews. So how could these normally diametrically opposed people, how could they actually get together and worship together? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at that uh, together if you do, that will come up on the screen, but if you want to follow it on your device or follow it in your Bible, uh, verse 11, Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. Now, I want us to watch as we're reading this, uh, how Paul, you know, is talking about these two different groups of people and what's drawing them together. So, bringing, beginning at verse 11, Ephesians 2, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's non-Jews, Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, that's an insulting term, by those who call themselves the circumcision, <clears throat> which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That's the situation of non-Jews. But now in Christ were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself, Christ himself, is our peace who has made the two groups one. He's brought these two irre irreconcilable groups and he's brought them together and made them one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, to the Gentiles, peace to the Jews, peace. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And you see what? What Paul is saying here, he says, it's <clears throat> humanly impossible that these utterly different people could actually be together and exist together and worship together. But they were. They were together. It was possible. Why was it possible? Because of the peace of God in Christ. There's some practical examples I can think of. My colleague in Istanbul, uh, Ibo Ibrahim, <clears throat> 
he is a, he has been a believer in the Lord Jesus for about 25 years but he has comes from a dark Sunni Muslim background the pastor of his church is Turkish Armenian now I don't know if you know anything about the history of the Armenians and the Turks it's a horrible horrible history and Joe Biden just a week or two ago actually used for the first time of any US president used the genocide word to describe what happened in 1915 and other times in the east of Turkey when the Turkish nation uh, the government at the time instituted a wholesale slaughter of its indigenous Christian population, uh, predominantly Armenians, but others as well, Greeks and Syrians and so on. And, uh, <clears throat> and so the, the, the level of hatred, I mean, you know, there are Armenians today who, who, who are living, who remember their grandparents were slaughtered by Turks. And, and, and so, and, and you've got, you know, Turks who, who hate Armenians because they see them as traitors and so on. And yet here we have a church in Istanbul, the pastor is Armenian, and Ibo is, a, you know, from a Sunni Muslim background. What brings them together? The fruit of peace in Jesus Christ. And then Ibo is married to Maya. Maya is an Azeri from Azerbaijan. Now, just uh, at the end of last year there, Azerbaijan and Armenia were at war. Terrible, terrible 40-day or so war. And of course, Turkey was helping Azerbaijan. And so here we've got, you know, Turkey helping Azerbaijan against Armenia. And here in Istanbul, we've got a church where one of the members is Turkish, the other is Azeri, and the pastor is Armenian. What is it that keeps them together? Because humanly speaking, they should all be enemies. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it's very, very powerful just to see that working out. Uh, <clears throat> I have a, a, dear, a dear Christian friend, again from a <clears throat> Turkish Sunni Muslim background who came to faith uh, many years ago, uh, and we got to know <clears throat> him and then his wife in Istanbul. Uh, he, when he learned what his grandfathers had done to the Armenians, because many young Turks aren't all that aware of that history, when he learned all of that history, and by this time he was, you know, growing, maturing in the Christian faith, and he had contact with Armenian Christians in Istanbul, and he'd actually met at one point the late Bishop <coughs> Mutafian, who was the head of the Armenian church in Istanbul. Do you know that he went to Mutafian's office? And he said, I've just been learning about the history of what my grandparents, my grandfathers did to your grandfathers. And I just want to say that I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry and they embraced and there were tears how does that come about it comes about through the fruit of the spirit as the spirit gives peace and then I remember Esther our, our Esther um, uh, we'd taken her to uh, a Turkish uh, Christian youth camp and uh, I think she probably was just about 12 or 13 at the time. So I took her to the camp and then we were going for a week's holiday while she was at the camp. And I remember asking her, I had to take her there early 
before all of our friends arrived and it was the previous group that was there that week it was all clearing up and so on so she wasn't going to be on her own but uh, it was the previous group and they were clearing up ready to go so I asked her you know after the camp was all finished and things I said oh yeah I'm sorry that I had to you know take you there so early and you would have to wait for your friends coming she says no no it's okay because uh, the group that were leaving they were there for a good few hours clearing up and things I said oh was this another group from you know of young believers from Turkey she said no uh, and being you know about 11 or 12 years old she didn't realize the significance of this she said it was a youth group from Israel consisting of young Palestinian Christians and young Israeli Christians spending a week together in fellowship with God these people are utterly and absolutely mutual enemies politically and culturally and religiously but you see when Jesus comes in these barriers are smashed they're broken down the peace that the Holy Spirit gives that's part of the fruit of the Spirit and then secondly this peace reconciles broken relationships and Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, he has a very special blessing for the peacemakers. He says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. These precious people are not prepared to stand by while others wallow in disharmony when relationships break down. Sensitive, Holy Spirit-led people they show the fruit of peace by bringing reconciliation between people who've fallen out. They're not peacekeepers, the status quo lovers who can't grasp nettles, but they're the peacemakers. And every church needs them. <laughs> every family does too. But if, you know, you've fallen out <clears throat> with someone in church, don't wait for the peacemaker. Sort it out and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And I remember when we lived in Istanbul, I was um, sharing an office with a young chap. We were about the same age. We'd actually, our families had arrived in Istanbul almost the same week, actually, and we were both in ministry. And we got together, we were in the same church at that point, and we shared an office together. He was American and I was Scottish. And you know, you know that saying that uh, America and the UK are <clears throat> divided by a common language. Well, you know, I got to find that out. And uh, well, <clears throat> we fell out. We really, really fell out mega style. I, I, I don't even remember now what it was we fell out about. It was probably something pretty trivial. But he really, really annoyed me. And I was later to learn, I can't imagine how this could be the case, but I really, really annoyed him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for a couple of weeks this went on, and we, we hardly really spoke to each other. And, uh, and it took someone else from the church that we were going to, to come alongside us and to sort of metaphorically bang our heads together and say, you fellas, you know, you've fallen out. You can't fall back in again. You need to get this sorted out. And you know that Jim and I, at that point, we saw the stupidity of all. 
we confessed to each other, we asked each other forgiveness. And I have one peacemaker to thank for bringing us together to do that. And so Paul, writing to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 14 and verse 19, where Paul says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. I was in a a conference in Antalya about a year and a half ago, and it's of Christian workers and so on. And Jim, uh, the chap that we'd, you know, fallen out with each other all these years ago, he was there. And, you know, at that point, after we had made up, there wasn't a shadow that ever appeared again in our relationship. And we got very close, very close friends. Then they moved to another city and, and our paths went different ways. But we met up there at that, and at, during the free time on the Saturday night, the two of us hived off into a corner together, exchanging photographs of family, catching up with news. And after all these years, not a shadow of discord between us. And then so Paul says, writing to a rather fractious church, in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 13 and 11, Paul actually closes by, by saying this. He says, <clears throat> he says, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. It comes up all the time, peace, striving for peace, keep peace. And then finally, third, eh, this peace dispels anxiety. It dispels anxiety. The disciples of Jesus were very anxious. They were utterly shocked at Jesus' words at the end of John chapter 13. And so in John chapter 14, verse 1, you know, what was happening is that Jesus was going away. And then, then, you know, the Lord said that that Peter would also uh, betray him. This was a crisis. They'd all given up everything for Jesus, and now he was going away. And they'd placed their hopes in him, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' death. They had all hoped that he would be the one who would rescue Israel. They had invested everything in him, and now he was going away. And so Jesus said to them, John 14 and 1, don't let your heart be troubled. And he promised them the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them something in John 14 and verse 27. He gives them his peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. There are two things about this peace that Jesus gave. The first thing is we've got the Prince of Peace. And he's imparting peace to his disciples, like a bequeath, like a gift, something he gives them that will sustain them in the long term, in the difficult days that would lie ahead. And then the the second thing is this, it is utterly unique. The world cannot give a peace like this. The world is powerless to give any significant or lasting peace. And the peace of Christ would guard and comfort their anxious and troubled and probably terrified minds. So Paul could write to the church at Philippi, which was under considerable pressure. And in Philippians chapter 4, as he's just drawing to the end of that that letter and and looking at verses 6 and 7, 
And, and what he's doing is writing to this church under pressure. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so... Paul says in verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. You sort of think, what? Is this some kind of a joke? We're still in the middle of COVID. We're looking at our news feeds and we're looking at India and we're seeing what's happening there and we're wondering where else is going to be a disaster. And, and we say, you know, don't be anxious about anything. So many things to be anxious about these days. COVID-19, the lockdown that's continuing, uh, furlough, the future, my family, my children, my parents, my job or lack of job, my jag, when am I getting the next jag? Uh, can we go on holiday? Uh, <clears throat> the way the country's going? The Philippian believers, of course, had reason to be anxious. They were facing persecution and false teachers. But Paul reminds them of this perfect antidote to anxiety in every situation. And there's no situation too big or too hard, or too complicated, or too difficult for God to understand. And I can give you, I can give you very up-to-date examples in my own life of where I have had to grasp hold of the peace of God. And so we take our prayers and our petitions and our anxiety, we take them before God, and we present them to God and we present them with thanksgiving because it's so easy to forget all the prayers that he's already answered. And then in verse 7, Paul says, when we do this, we'll experience the opposite of anxiety, the peace, but not the peace that yoga or mindfulness claims to give, but the peace of God. He is the God of peace. He is the bringer of peace. And so we find this peace overwhelming, totally pervading, all-encompassing, deep peace which only God, the maker and sustainer of the world, can impart. It's beyond our understanding. It surpasses all we can imagine. This peace also guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. That word guard, it's really, it means to, to garrison, to garrison, to protect. Uh, and you know, Philippi, of course, was a Roman colony and there was massive garrison and there'd be soldiers all around and so on. The, the Philippians would understand this language to be guarded. And so uh, the peace of God guards our minds which take in ideas, and our hearts, which are open to affections. And my, these needed, our minds and our hearts needed to be guarded today as never before. There are anti-Christian lecturers, celebrities, bloggers, journalists, politicians. They want to steal our minds and our hearts. And it's the peace of God that will guard our mind and our heart. And so may each of us know the peace of God from the God of peace in our minds and in our hearts. And may others see that peace in our lives, which is powerful evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in us for his glory. 
Father, that is our earnest prayer today, that we might demonstrate and that we might experience that fruit of the Spirit called peace. In his name, amen.